0: You know, there are people in our world today who just think they can flirt and flirt and flirt with sin and that there'll be no consequence, that they can somehow, when they're ready, get right with God. And they forget that it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes. That payday will eventually come.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Reaping Moral Compromised. Last week, Pastor Carl reminded us that we are never to compromise the word of God or his standards. And today we will see how a father's disobedience can have lasting effects on his children. Please join us in the book of Genesis, chapter 38, as we continue.
0: Now listen, men, wherever you are in the world, you are called to lead your family. You're a dad, the family shepherd. That doesn't make you better than your wife. You desperately need your wife. She's your helpmate, but you can't have two heads. To have two heads is to be a monster. And if, you usur- if your wife usurps your leadership by you're abdicating your responsibility, You have created disaster in your home, and typically you will feminize your children. I was speaking to a man this week. He said, well, you know, I don't know if my wife wants to join Community Bible Church. I said, well, what's your thought? Well, I love the church. I feel like it's a place where we can really grow, but my wife's not so sure she likes the church. He said, lead, man. Lead. Be a man. Get with it. Get on the program. Tell your wife I'm going to go and I'm going to join, and I need you to support me in this decision but he is abdicating his leadership. That's Judah's wayward behavior. That leads to his worldly bride, and so it's not surprising that we see the fruit of it in Judah's wicked boys, Judah's wicked boys. Look, if you will, now at verse six. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, we're not told specifically what the problem was with Judah's firstborn heir, except to know that he did evil, or some translations say he did wickedly in the sight of the Lord. You ask, how wicked or how evil was he? Well, it warrants a response from God Almighty in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Put out on the margin next to that verse, or circle it in the marginal note if you have marginal notes, First Corinthians 2.3. The chronicler obviously read the law. It was important to him to read Moses. In First Chronicles 2.3, the chronicler says, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he, the Lord, put him to death. And that's what we read here. He was evil in the sight of the Lord, so Yahweh took his life. You know, there are people in our world today who just think they can flirt and flirt and flirt with sin and that there'll be no consequence, that they can somehow, when they're ready, get right with God. And they forget that it is the Lord who gives and it is the Lord who takes. The payday will eventually come, and it came on this boy named Ur. So suddenly, Tamar is without a husband. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. The family's future was in jeopardy. And so according to the custom of the day, Onan was to marry his brother's wife. And the first boy, in order to protect the family name, would follow Ur, and it was also to provide ultimately for needs that would be in the family, especially if there was a a, a lady who maybe had several children and all of a sudden she's without a husband. Now, I'm not going to go into live right marriage this morning. Lever is from the Latin. We have a lot of terms we use in the church today that come from the Latin Bible. The word lever means brother-in-law or or husband's brother. But if you want to study it, I did a whole sermon, a whole series on the book of Ruth and I covered in great detail. About 400 years later, when Moses comes on the scene in Deuteronomy chapter 25, he's gonna codify the procedure for leveret marriage. But in this culture, because the heir was so important to care for the parents in old age and to secure uh, a heritage, and of course, we're dealing here with the Jewish people from whom God is going to bring the savior of the world, they practice it. And so this unmarried brother, Or sometimes the closest relative, like in the case of Ruth and and Boaz, would marry the woman. And the nearest relative, in this case, it's obvious. And then after they had that child, the others would be his children, so to speak. All right, let's keep reading. Onan agrees, but he agrees under false pretenses. Verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Now remember, according to Deuteronomy 25, you might wanna go home and read that, the firstborn son would actually take the deceased brother's name. The offspring would not be his, Moses records, and rightly so. But Onan, he wants sexual pleasure without responsibility. That's our culture. And so he spills his seed. Now, by the way, our Roman Catholic friends use this verse, this is their headquarters verse, to say that all birth control is wrong. Now, let me say parenthetically, certainly some birth control is absolutely evil because there are some forms of birth control that create an abortion after a baby is conceived. But with that said, this particular text of Scripture has nothing to do with birth control or with onanism. It has everything to do with your willingness as a married person to have children and to raise up a godly heritage. And sadly, we live in a day when we have more and more Christian people who refuse the command that God gave in Genesis initially to Adam and Eve, again after the great flood, and all the way through Scripture, that His people are to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I have no doubt that God put this in the Bible with a specific intent that we might see the sin of preventing a conception, among other things. Now, we live in a day where the Christian culture, more and more, is shaped by the world around us instead of by the Word of God. And we don't really see children the way God sees children. I have a sermon on Malachi 2, we're in Malachi 2.16. I, the Lord God of Israel, hate divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Among other reasons, because what it does to children. And children are important to God. And we see more and more of these children being abused, even in our government school system, where they're being taught as seven and eight-year-olds, maybe you, a boy, are really a girl. That's child abuse. Beyond imagination, we've witnessed this week of these Taliban people taking little 12-year-old girls and raping them and, and making them brides. That's wicked, that is evil. And God says in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, the Bible never envisions a couple choosing not to have children. There's an assumption that you will see children the way God sees them, as a blessing, as gifts, as a reward from him. And to choose not to have children is a form of rebellion the Bible speaks of the fruit of the womb as a heritage. He describes it like olive plants, which would be a beautiful descriptive blessing in the mind of a Hebrew reading the text as a reward from him. But our culture says they're burdens, they're belongings. They hinder you from the kind of lifestyle that you want to live. And those who reject children like Onan who want the the joys of intimacy without the responsibility of fathering a child are deep in sin. Now, let me say, I know there are couples who cannot have children. I get that. But nowhere in Scripture is there any indication that we can control without seeking the living God whether to have children or the size of the family that God might give us. And certainly in cases of infertility, adoption might be an option for some. Now look, I've got enough mail over the years to speak on this sensitive subject. Some people are gonna get angry with me. But quite honestly, if a man of God cannot stand in the pulpit of God and open the word of God and teach you what he says, where are you gonna get what you think? It needs to come from Scripture, and if you've been here long enough, you know that I'm called not to selectively preach the Scripture, not to avoid difficult subjects. I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God, and quite honestly, I don't really care what you think, but I do care what God thinks, because someday as a pastor, I'm going to stand face-to-face to my Savior at the judgment of the just and give an account of how I handled this book. Listen to what Paul said, however, in 1 Corinthians 7, because based on 1 Corinthians 7, the scripture teaches by mutual agreement, there can be a time for abstinence from intimacy. Listen to these words. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then God said through the apostle Paul, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So for a set period of time, agreed upon by both husband and wife and for the purpose of prayer, Not for habitually coming apart, but for a set period of time, a couple can come apart for what reasons? Sometimes health reasons. Sometimes there are times in a woman's life where that's necessary. Sometimes there are some critical living arrangements or issues that can we we take on another one? And so you seek the living God in prayer, and for a period of time, you come apart. And if you want to let God overrule, then he can. But you see, we tend to build our theology from the world around us instead of having a renewed mind. And and we think, well, you know, pastor, if you teach what you teach, that God really wants to bless us with children, we're going to have an army. Well, look, if God gives you 15 or 20 children, you're a blessed man. I grew up in a home in the 60s where there was no such thing as birth control. Of course, it doesn't enter into the United States until the 1960s, but in the church we were raised in, Roman Catholics were determined not to use birth control. And the families didn't, and they would march in on Sunday morning. The largest family was Dr. Fasello's family. He had 12 children but most families had three or four. Some had five. My dad had eight. Actually, technically nine. My mother lost her last in a miscarriage. But I'm glad they didn't quit at four because I'm number five. You see, we think we're going to have this army. Well, so what? You know who's having an army of children? Do you know that 70 percent of the people in Afghanistan this morning are under the age of 25. And by the way, that's true of most of the Muslim countries. And the rate America's going in another 18 years, there'll be 50 million Muslims in America. Why? Because many, and we shouldn't hate Muslims, we should seek to win these people to Christ. But believers who have the truth are not raising a godly heritage as they should. Now, we understand that through natural means, breastfeeding, sometimes ovulation can be slowed down or ill health, emotional stress, or just coming apart for a period of time for prayer. But eventually, give it to the living God. Let Him, you'll have no regrets when you step into eternity. You're not gonna take anything with you, but hopefully you're your children, because they've met Jesus as their personal Savior. Now, let me say parenthetically, while we're on the subject, None of us need to meddle in someone else's life. We don't need to be their judge. Like, Man, why do you have only two? It's none of your business. We won't judge one another. We will, look, there are things I know that go on, and because I hear it in a pastor's office that most people have no idea about. So be careful here. But I don't want you to miss God's best because you're selfish or deliberately disobedient without giving God a chance to overrule. Now, it's another sermon in itself, but neither, if you've heard me on the Bible line, do I endorse forcing conception through surrogate mothers, through frozen embryos being implanted, through conception outside of the womb. That's a sermon in itself, and I have stuff online if you want to hear it. All life is sacred. But again, we need to let God rule in life. And look, even if life comes through illegitimate means, even if a woman is raped, people ask me, like, this is some deal. What if your daughter was raped? It would be awful. Would you tell her to get an abortion? Of course, I never would. All life is sacred. I used to love as a new believer listening to Ethel Waters stand up and sing at those Billy Graham crusades. His life is on the sparrow and I know he watches me because she was the product of a rape. And so we are to let our minds be renewed with Scripture and to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. And God puts this little piece in here about Onan because he doesn't want people to have pleasure without responsibility. And so look further now in verse 10, what he did, verse 10 says, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now that's Judah and his sons. Beginning now in verse 11, we have Judah and his sins. And I hope you understand that this man Judah is simply reaping what he has sown. I don't know precisely what he preached to his family, but I do know that he was a terrible example to his children. First, consider Judah's perverted values, Judah's perverted values. Now, remember, two of his sons are dead, and there's only one son, Shelah, who's left. And by liveret marriage, she's next in line uh, for, uh, he's next in line to marry Tamar. Now, how would you like to be in Sheila's shoes? <laughs> his first two brothers were dead and now it's your turn to marry. Well, verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son, Sheila, grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. He is really driven more by superstition than he is by truth. There's a reason these boys are dead. They're dead because they fell under the judgment of God Almighty. But do you see what he's thinking and how his thinking is influencing his doing? Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. He's blaming Tamar. He's saying the reason I've got two dead sons, man, is because of you. And he's thinking inwardly, if I let her marry this third son, then he's gonna die as well. And that's unfair, it's unjust, and it is not true. The reason these boys died had nothing to do with Tamar. It's because what they did was, is the text is displeasing, evil in the sight of the Lord. If he ought to be blaming anyone, he ought to be blaming himself. His decision to move from the area where the covenant people were to this place called Adullam was a mistake and then to become close friends with a pagan, and then to marry a pagan Canaanite woman who ended up leading the family who became an example of godlessness to her sons. Now, beyond his perverted values, think for a moment about Judah's personal vileness, his personal vileness. Some years pass, and we are told here in verse 12, now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, Judah's wife, whose name is never given but simply identified as the daughter of this Canaanite man named Shudah, his wife now dies. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. When the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So instead of finding comfort in the midst of grief, he fills this void by getting his unsaved friend, Hera the Edomite, and they want to go up to this place called Timnah. Now, this was in the spring of the year. This is the time when you would shear sheep. Here's a picture of Timnah. Now, this one, unfortunately, was taken in the dead of summer. If we were there in March, which we don't usually go to Israel in March because it rains a lot, everything would be green and beautiful. But when the hot sun comes, everything turns brown. So this is a picture of Timnah and here's the valley below. Uh, Some of you on one of our trips, we went to this very spot. That's known as uh, Solomon's Copper Mines. The Scripture speaks about Solomon's copper mines. This is the actual mines where Solomon would mine the copper for the temple and for other things. And 1 Samuel 25 indicates that when they shared the sheep, it was really a time of celebration, a time of God's blessing. But if you're a pagan you're gonna celebrate in a very different way. Look, the way a pagan celebrates Christmas, he invites the family over, they get high, they get buzzed, they drink a lot of wine. The way a godly family celebrates Christmas is very different. Christ is in the center, and so this is a time to remember God's blessing, but for this man, he is gonna do something very evil. And so notice Tamar, he is not giving his son to her and live right marriage, so she's going to take it into her own hands. Verse 13, and it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to share his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given him to him as a wife. So she disguises herself as a temple prostitute. By the way, the Canaanites would mix acts of immorality into their worship service. And that's true in many pagan religions today. I mean, these Muslims who say, I'm gonna blow myself up because I'm gonna get 72 virgins. This is wicked stuff, this is beyond wicked. This is the evil one giving them these thoughts and it's recorded right in the Quran. Yes, it is an evil, wicked, violent religion. It's not true, it's false, it's wrong. And there are cults today that mix sexual immorality with so-called worship. So she knew her father-in-law well enough to know that here was a sensual guy, he could be a candidate for my services. So she tries to trick him. And, of course, we read here in verse 15, not knowing who she was, she's propositioned. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. The veil was a customary device that a prostitute would use, not for modesty, as some women do in the Bible, but to seduce a man. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Now, that was the price of her services. But she wants to frame the man. She wants some security in lieu of the fact that he is going to delay payment. He offers her a young goat. He doesn't have it with her, so I I want some guarantee. I want a pledge. He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, verse 18, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So he indulges himself. He gets up and leaves, minus his ring. His ring was, it was like they would put it on typically a cord around your neck, or you could wear it on your finger. And the signet you would use in business transactions, you would put it into wax. They have found some ancient signets. It's like a fingerprint. No question who it belongs to. He leaves his signet, he leaves the cord that would be around his neck, and he leaves his staff where they would indeed carve identifying marks. Then she arose and departed, removed her veil, and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he wants to make payment. He especially wants his ring back and his staff. Verse 31, his friend goes. He asks the man of of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Enaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Uh, the Hebrew text literally says, he asked, where is the Kadesha? that is the sacred prostitute? And here was this woman who, like a typical Canaanite would do as an act of worship to the Canaanite goddess of love, she would give herself. There's no such woman here. I don't know what you're talking about. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, you know, I'm a man of integrity. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. The only thing he is concerned about is how people perceive him. Not that he had sinned against the living God, but ultimately, your sins will find you out. You will reap what you sow. For God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. So he's ignited this time bomb, which brings us thirdly to Judah's pretended virtue. Judah's pretended virtue. Three months come and go, and I'm sure by this time, the incident is far from his mind. Why? Because he has a calloused, insensitive conscience. We're told in verse 24, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. Behold, she is also a child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This in his mind will conveniently solve the problem because he had put off for years giving his younger son an live right marriage, bring her out, bring that wretch out we're going to burn her. It's pretty hard to find a greater hypocrite than this guy in Scripture. I mean, you talk about a double standard. Like so many people, he's quick to judge somebody else without judging himself. You should put out in the margin next to this verse, Romans 2, 1 and 2. I have a whole sermon just on those two verses, Romans 2, 1 and 2. You see, the only difference between him and Tamar is that he had been caught, or she had been caught and he had not. So he's thinking, where is that immoral woman? We're gonna burn her. That's what people do who are typically caught up in a sin. They are hard on people who are guilty of the same sin. So a liar is hard on people who lie. An immoral person is hard on someone who's immoral. A gossip will always be harder on the person who's a gossip.
1: Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. To listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program, Reaping Moral Compromise. If you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.